So you actually had some patients or donors that resulted positive during this time? We did. Hello, I'm Rachel Deer, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. This is the October 23rd update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are, describe the impact of COVID-19 on blood and marrow stem cell transplant patients, name three strategies for keeping blood and marrow stem cell transplant patients safe during a pandemic, and discuss an algorithm for testing blood and marrow stem cell transplant recipients and donors. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Michaela Olson and Kathy Mooney from the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where Michaela is an oncology clinical nurse specialist and Kathy is a blood and marrow stem cell transplant clinical nurse specialist. They will be discussing how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed their bone marrow transplant procedures. Michaela and Kathy, thanks for your time. Thank you. So Kathy, I have some more questions for you regarding the care of the transplant patient during this COVID pandemic. I wanted to know, how do you really prepare patients and their, and their families, caregivers, to go through such a major treatment modality when you can't have those caregivers at the bedside or in, at the chair side? How does that affect the care of the patient, the teaching, um, just everything that you have to do to get these patients through this? This is not an easy thing to go through, and it's a pretty major life-changing thing for patients to go through, especially during this time. Yes, this was a major, major change and a major shift from our transplant process and our the way we do transplant here is the caregivers are an extension of the care team. They are really, you know, our eyes and ears for a majority of the day helping us to take care of these patients in an outpatient setting. So removing them from that close contact with the nurses and the nurse practitioners and the providers in the clinic was, was very stressful. Um, and we had to think very carefully about how we were going to do that and really maintain the safety of the patient and keep them in the loop. One of the things we did early on was partner with our BMT case managers. They have interactions with the patient and caregivers from the very beginning of BMT evaluation. So they get to know these patients and their caregivers very early on in the process. And so we utilize that relationship to 
kind of set the tone for how this was going to go and really ease their concerns from the very start that, you know, they were going to be taken care of. They were still going to be part of the treatment team. We were just going to have to do things a little bit differently. Um, and so we really value kind of that relationship that starts early on. They helped us really guide the patients and the caregivers through so that when they got to us in the clinic, they were well prepared. They, it wasn't a shock to them that this was going to happen. And so that really helped. We had our IPOP charge nurses and our IPOP assistant nurse manager create a caregiver report sheet so that at the end of every visit, uh, the nurse would fill out a simple one-page report sheet for the caregiver to let them know what was happening during the visit, if we had any medication changes, if they received any medications or blood products or chemo that day so that they felt like they were part of that team. And so that way we could send this simple report sheet home with the patient every day and the caregiver could review it. They could call us back with any questions um, or any clarifying information, but they were kept in the loop every step of the way. That's an excellent idea. I wonder if a mother came up with that because it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like uh, what my daycares used to do, so. Exactly, right? It's just a, a quick sign out, which was, was very helpful. And I think that eased some of the concerns that the caregivers had not being at that chairside bedside with the patient. Yeah, and if they noticed a discrepancy or a problem, they could call in and clarify it. And we talked um, in our previous session about the changes we made to our education sessions and you know, utilizing more Zoom-type platforms to allow us to engage the caregiver and the patient in our teaching so that they were a part of that as well. Um, and so that's kind of our main goal is to always include them as much as possible in any discussion we're having with the patient. We are very, you know, aware that they want to be there. So if patients want to call their family members and listen in while we're doing our assessments or while we're teaching, we more than welcome that so that they can at least hear what we're saying and they can ask questions, even though they can't be in person with us. Our education had to be tailored a little bit for this crisis that we were undergoing. We live in a world of severe neutropenia, and we live in a world where we kind of put our patients in this bubble, even though they're outpatients, to really prevent infection. And that's kind of always been the focus of our education, is how to prevent infection, how to minimize risk as you're coming and going between the clinic and your home or local housing, but also how to kind of maintain a normal life as well, as much as possible. One of the things we had to do was really include the caregiver in that type of education, right? So we focus on the patient and their risk of infection, but now we had to focus on the caregiver as well. You have to minimize your risk of getting infected, getting COVID. So that means you have to limit your exposure to the outside world while you're being the caregiver of this patient. Whereas in previous months, we would have said, you know, feel free to go wherever you need to, go to the grocery store, go, you know, shopping, whatever, go to work if you have to, you know, but now we're saying, no, you can't. You really have to maintain as much of this bubble, the two of you, as you can to avoid that exposure to the patient undergoing this transplant. So that was a big shift in our education, was really talking about COVID to just the, not just the patient, but the caregiver as well, and really um, explain the risks that they had to avoid while undergoing this process. You know, the other thing we had to think about was we rely on the caregivers a lot in terms of transportation to and from the appointment. So not just driving to the appointment, but our campus is very large. A lot of our patients as they're undergoing this process feel weaker and they have a harder time walking from the parking garage all the way into our clinic. It's a very long walk. 
And so the caregivers really assist them in that as well. And so how do we then get the patient safely to the clinic without the caregiver? So we had to do a handoff method where we utilized our support staff in the clinic to help go meet the caregivers um, at certain locations within the hospital before they kind of got to the entrance and then they could bring the patient into the clinic. We also had a front door screening program where we utilized support staff and nurses to screen visitors and patients coming in and out of the building. And so utilizing that as well to help then identify when patients needed uh, maybe a wheelchair to get up to the clinic, they could assist in that endeavor as well. Finally, you know, we had to really think about limiting exposure, not just to the patients, but also to the staff. And so we had to really screen every single person that was coming into our clinics and so the way we did that was the assistant nurse manager and IPOP created a phone template so that the patients were given instructions to check their temperatures before their visit and then call us if they had any elevation in temperature or any other signs or symptoms of COVID before they came in for their visit. That way we could screen them on the phone and we could determine the safest place for them to show up. You know, should they come to their clinic? Should they be direct admitted? Should they go get a test and then go to another part of the hospital? And so it really helped kind of limit just everyone coming in and then announcing that they had symptoms that day and that visit and potentially exposing others. And now since we used to do the paper and phone pre-screening, we now have through our electronic medical record, a pretty cool system that will ask the patient symptoms via my chart and then the patient answers the question and if they get a green go pass, then they just show that on their phone at the door showing that they screened negative for COVID and they can enter the building right away. So we have come up with some technology to streamline this process and make it a little more automated, which is kind of cool. Okay, so then the other thing I wanted to talk about is how we dealt with testing for recipients and donors um, for COVID before transplant. We're, we've always been very, very careful with our transplant patients. They undergo a battery of tests for different types of infections to make sure that they're clear of those infections before the transplant to minimize their risk. But how did you um, embark upon this testing pre-transplant, both for your patients and for the donors? So this was a, a pretty big feat that we had to kind of figure out and we had to figure it out you know, as quickly as possible, right? Because as we were learning about COVID and learning about symptoms and figuring out how we were testing in, in our hospital environment, where you could test and how long those results came, you know, this was something that was just kind of rapidly changing and we had to really figure out a, a sustainable way to make this happen. We have always tested our patients for respiratory viruses during flu season. So here, our flu season is from October to May. So it's the majority of the year where we need to get a full respiratory panel prior to transplant to make sure they don't have any flu symptoms or respiratory viruses ongoing at the time before we start prep. So we already had that kind of process in place, but now we couldn't do that in our clinic space because of the potential risk of COVID if they were happen to be positive. So we had to move everything out of our clinic space and then we had to figure out where that was gonna happen. In our oncology center, we're limited in negative pressure space. So we really couldn't designate 
a negative pressure space that could be utilized all day for testing? And then how would you clean that environment between patients? So it seemed very burdensome. So we had to work very closely with the lab who created the test as well as the people running the testing site. So Hopkins uh, luckily had put up a bunch of testing tent sites outside of all of our different locations. And so we were able to work closely with that group to say, we need to send our patients to you. We need it to be in a very specific time frame. We need to get more than one test done. And how can we accomplish that and get the patient's results back in a timely manner so that we can start our preparative regimen? Because once the schedule is set for transplant, it's very hard to manipulate because we're waiting on test results. So we really didn't want to run into delays. Right. I think also as a little bit of background, our organization from the beginning believed this was an airborne virus. We treated it as an airborne virus and we came up with the institution, our infection control colleagues came up with a list of potentially aerosolizing procedures and they did that very quickly. And doing the flock swab to test for RSV or COVID was considered an aerosolizing procedure, which is why Kathy talks about having to move that out of a, of a space where we have immunocompromised patients and quickly be able to test them in a negative pressure environment with staff that are trained to do that. Um, we wanted the results to be accurate. We needed the test to be done correctly every time. And we believed those people out in the tents received good training and competencies and our patients would be best served by going to those in that environment. Correct. The other thing we had to do was we had to coordinate with our pediatric transplant group as well because they follow the same guidelines as we do. Um, and so we had to make a process that was gonna work for both pediatrics and adults because they're serviced by the same coordinator group and some of the um, other personnel. So we had to make an algorithm that would work for all areas. We included the, the providers, we included the case managers, the IPOP assistant nurse manager and myself, and we really sat down and kind of identified, you know, when did we need the testing done? And at the current time, how long was it taking to get a test result done? So in the early days of COVID, it could be multiple days before we received a result. And because of limited abilities to test, and as we you know, increase that number of tests they could run in one you know, time period, the, this wasn't at the top of the list, right? This wasn't gonna be the stat test that had to be done within hours. This was gonna fall into the category of, it could take a couple of days to get results. So we had to figure out how long we had that we could get a test done and get results back and start our preparative regimen or get our lines placed and not have any delays, as well as we didn't want to do it too early and then risk patient becoming positive after the fact. So it was a very tight window that we created where um, we really relied on a test and results within 24 to 48 hours to then proceed with the next, the, either the line placement or the preparative regimen. And we didn't want to extend that any further than we had to because we were worried about people becoming positive at later dates. That was the first thing we kind of had to troubleshoot was really identifying that timeline and then working with the tents to say, this is a stat test priority. We really need you to schedule these patients within 24 hours of us asking for the test or hopefully that same day so that we could get this done in this window. And they were very helpful and they, they worked really well with us to get, this, to get this done and to get patients to a testing location that was convenient for them and within the timeframe that we really needed it. And the, the patients actually just literally drove their car into the tent and didn't even get out of the car 
they were swabbed and they drove on their way. So it was very, very convenient. Yes. And we have, luckily we have locations throughout kind of the Maryland DC area. So our patients coming, not just from Baltimore, had a, a almost a local place that they could go to that had the same policies that we used at, at our Baltimore location, which also helped. Other issues we ran into was as hospital policies were changing related to COVID, as we were learning more, as we were understanding more, we had to shift this algorithm to match that. So as procedures kind of started opening back up and uh, they realized that they should probably test those patients before any procedure, we had to shift our testing strategy to match in line with their policies that they were putting in place because the majority of our patients go get a line placed immediately prior to transplant um, in their procedure space. So we had to kind of keep realigning our algorithm to meet other hospital policies as things changed, as things opened up, um, as we learned more. The other thing we struggled with was how do you test donors? How do you get that done in a timely fashion, especially for donors who don't live in this general area and they live somewhere else? How do we use other testing sites? Do we make them come here? So we had a lot of questions around donor testing as well. What we really wanted to do was we really wanted to test donors the moment we identified them as a donor. So as we were doing BMT evaluations and we picked a donor, we wanted to test them right then so that we didn't move forward with a donor that was positive because we didn't know at the time how long that positivity was gonna remain, how, how sick that person was gonna get. We didn't have any of that information. So it was scary to think that we were gonna go down this road of transplant with a donor that God forbid got COVID and something catastrophic happened to them. What, what does that mean for the patient? So we really struggled with that time frame, um, And then we also wanted to test them right before the patient started prep again, because we knew that there was this long window of time where patients could have negative results, but, but actually be positive. They could get exposed in the meantime. And so how do we reconcile both of those things? Unfortunately, initially, we didn't have the testing capacity to do both. So we had to pick the testing at the time of transplant. And, you know, we eased our minds a little bit by thinking, you know, how often do donors have something happen right before transplant that we're not aware of? And it doesn't happen often, luckily, but this was a whole new ball game. We weren't, we didn't know anything yet. So it was very scary, but we had to kind of press forward with what we knew and what we had the ability to do. And at that time, uh, when this was first happening, we could only test once. And so it was going to be right before the uh, patient started their prep regimen. And again, we had the same kind of testing constraints as we did with the patients. We had to make sure it was done and in a very specific time frame, so we'd get the results and the patient could move forward and potentially the donors could be collected. Um, and so there was a lot of kind of maneuvering between appointments and time frames. And when things were done, we had to shift a lot of our appointment making to allow all this to happen. Luckily, it, it worked. Uh, we had very good results with this testing strategy. We were able to identify patients who potentially were exposed or were COVID positive, and we were able to, you know, delay things if we had to or find new donors um, and safely get our patients through through transplant. So you actually had some patients or donors that resulted positive during this time? We did. And so, you know, we would just have to, because we hadn't started a prep regimen at yet we were able to say okay well we're we're putting a pause on this let's delay until we can you know we could maybe look for a different donor or um, we could delay until the patient had recovered and move that down the road um, but it was better to identify that before we had started giving you know high dose chemotherapy and making patients severely neutropenic to then have to you know find out their COVID positive after the fact 
Right, right. And I bet a lot of patients and caregivers really utilized some of the curbside delivery options for their meals and, and groceries and things like that, which I also feel is a new way of the future. I, I know that my college child loves the to go on his app and order from Whole Foods and or another grocery store and have it delivered to his dorm room. And I think that in some ways the kids were a little ahead of us. I think these kinds of things are going to be sort of the way of the future and very good for um, protecting these patients in the home environment. Mm -hmm. And we're lucky that we're in a, you know, a busy urban environment where there are, those things are already in place, right? So pre-COVID, we were already in an area where those types of delivery services are already full, fully running and, and available to our patients and our staff and our caregivers. Right. And I would say also that another unique challenge for the transplant patients, we require they have a caregiver at all times. And so the caregiver could drive the patient here and drop them off. But for our other ambulatory patients, sometimes they come alone. And if they don't drive and they live in the city and don't have a car, they would typically take an Uber or some other type of public transportation. And if they had symptoms of COVID and were coming in sick and needed to be tested, you know, it wasn't a good option to bring them in through public transportation or even some other type of cab or, or something. So we did, uh, our Lifeline folks set up very early on uh, a COVID positive van mm -hmm. that they were able to transport patients that were either persons of interest for COVID or actual COVID patients. So that was also another nice innovation that helped get our patients to um, receive the care that they needed to get. Yes, and I think as they left our bubble of IPOP, it was nice that we had, you know, the whole oncology center was kind of operating under these same procedures and there was a lot of work done in the whole center to move care and and figure out ways to give care that wasn't in the clinic and wasn't require the patient to come in every day so there was virtual provider visits and you know the the drive up shot clinic where our transplant patients could come they could get their vaccines safely stay on schedule and it lessened some of that fear of coming into this bigger space of the clinic even though they had been you know in the hospital this whole time it feels scarier to leave that IPOP bubble when you've been there for 60 days. So right. having things like the drive-up shot clinic uh, really kind of eased their concerns as well and ensured that they continued their visits and they got the care that they needed even post-transplant. Mm -hmm. Great. So um, this has been a great discussion, Kathy. Thank you so much for all the work you and everybody else has done for the transplant patients. And um, really, it's been quite successful, and I'm so happy that we were still able to treat our patients during this time, keep them in our own care, and provide the good services that we have always provided for them. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy, and thank you, Michaela. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q is in question, A is in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.